Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Free Lutheran Church Sermon Archive. It's our hope that this message would encourage you in your faith and would help you to get to know God's love, grace, and mercy in a personal way. If you have any questions on the sermon or would like to know more about Maranatha, please visit us on the web at maranathafreelutheran.com or call our church office at 218-498-2808. Thank you, and may God bless. Good morning. Caleb uh, kind of mentioned it already this morning, but uh, after a long Christmas and New Year's uh, holidays, I think it's kind of nice to get back into the normal routine and rhythm uh, of the year, isn't it? Even if uh, some of that seems a little bit uh, just, I don't know, mundane, it is kind of nice. I I enjoy that rhythm and that routine. Uh, So again, good morning. Glad to have each one of you with us. Welcome in Jesus' name. Shame. Uh, We're going to be talking about shame a little bit this morning. And shame is something that we have all experienced at various times, isn't it? And shame is more than a feeling. Uh, The dictionary defines shame this way. It's a painful emotion caused by a consciousness of guilt, shortcomings, or impropriety. It can also be defined as a condition of disgrace or dishonor. And let me tell you a story uh, on myself and uh, some shame that I incurred. And don't worry, it's, uh, it's nothing too serious. <laughs> uh, most of you know that I owned a motorcycle. And yes, owned is past tense. I sold my, I sold my bike this summer when gas was $5 a gallon and I got like twice what it was worth. So it was, uh, it was a good deal. Uh, but I bought that bike from a buddy of mine uh, in seminary. It wasn't running when I bought it and I tried everything over the next six months to get that thing running. Uh, however, at the time, my knowledge of motorcycles wasn't great, and I just didn't have the time to fix it. I was finishing up seminary internship. I was graduating. We were in the process of moving to Arizona. Uh, our daughter, Serena, was about to be born. I, I just didn't have time to work on it, and so eventually I took it, do- uh, took it down to a place in Arizona uh, where we were living, and they, they charged me an arm and a leg and finally got the thing running. And I was ecstatic. I, I, I don't think I'd ever been so happy. Uh, this was the first, my first motorcycle. I had dreamed of having a bike since I was a little kid, and it was finally mine, and it was finally running. And uh, so here I was, uh, about week riding into my motorcycle when the, the painful emotion caused by consciousness of shortcomings and a condition of disgrace and dishonor <laughs> comes into play for me. I was on my way to church about a mile from Calvary there, and my engine began to sputter and died. And I, I pulled her off to the side of the road and tried to get her going again, but, but nothing. <laughs> I realized I had ran her out of gas. <laughs> and then I got to do what bikers called the walk of shame. It actually is called that. It is called the walk of shame. <laughs> it's a long mile to that church where, uh, where the other pastor, Big Al, you know what he did, Stan and Jeannie? He just laughed at me. <laughs> and then he very nicely took me to the gas station and, and helped me fill up with gas and got my back to my bike. Uh, but another, again, the, the real shame came later on that day uh, when I called the buddy who sold the bike to me and I owned up to him what I had done. And... Uh, he laughed at me. <laughs> and he said, you know what? Yeah, that fuel tank has a reserve. <laughs> you, you flip a little switch and you get an extra half gallon of gas and it'll get you where you need to go. 
you, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> and it's true. I would have been able to make it to church, no problem. And uh, there were a lot of times where that reserve bailed me out <laughs> when I didn't put fuel on quick enough. Shame. <laughs> I was ashamed of what I had done, and I was also ashamed of what I did not know. Uh, today, however, we're going to be talking about the opposite of shame. We're going to be talking about being unashamed, being unashamed. Last fall, we went through Paul's first letter of Timothy together, and during Advent, the weeks leading up to Christmas, we, we looked at Paul's letter to Titus. And now, as we're on this side of Christmas, we're going to look at Paul's second letter to Timothy. And last week, Pastor Lloyd introduced the background of that letter, so we won't take time to do that again. But I will mention that this letter was probably written around 67 or 68 A.D. It's Paul's last letter that we have recorded. Um, he, and, and again, he is in a Roman prison. But this time, Paul doesn't see any prospect of release. This letter then for Paul is almost the last will and testament. In this letter, he lays out some beautiful truths of the gospel. And he also gets intensely personal both of those traits we'll see later on today. This morning we'll look at verses 8 through 18 of 2 Timothy chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there as well. And in these verses, Paul gives Timothy two commands, and then he opens up his heart to the struggles and trials he is enduring. Uh, we'll look at these things one by one this morning. Uh, the first command is found in verses 8 through 12. Paul says, Do not be ashamed of the gospel. Would you stand with me out of reverence for the word of the Lord if you're able? First, I'm sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 12. It's found on page 935 of your pew Bible. Reading in Jesus' name. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Jesus Christ before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed as a preacher and an apostle and a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for this letter that Paul wrote to Timothy 2,000 years ago. Lord, and uh, even though it was written so long ago, it is still very applicable today. And help us as we look at this word today and uh, apply it to our lives, Jesus. And as we uh, learn from your word, may we be not ashamed of what you have done for us. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Do not be ashamed of the gospel. First, this is what, what Paul tells Timothy, not to be ashamed of the, the testimony of our Lord, about our Lord. Uh, the testimony about our Lord is simply another way of saying the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Oftentimes in a church context like this, we, we throw around the word gospel sort of willy-nilly. 
Uh, however, the gospel isn't just something to tack on uh, to, into a sermon. It's not just a few talking points that, that good Christians should have down pat. No, the gospel is more than that. The gospel is the true narrative of the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of our Lord and our God, our Savior, Jesus Christ. It, it is the good news, the greatest news that through Jesus, salvation and, and the forgiveness of sins is available to you. This is possible because Jesus Christ gave his life to redeem you, to, to rescue you from sin, to be the atoning sacrifice he gave his life in exchange for you, dying in your place and on your behalf. And in him we have the forgiveness of sins. And yet death wasn't able to conquer Jesus. No, three days later, right, Jesus rose from the dead victorious. His resurrection conquered death and, and proved that the atonement made on Good Friday was fully accomplished. And after that, Jesus ascended into heaven where he is right now ruling and reigning at the Father's right hand. And he is soon returning and will take us to be with him. This is the gospel. This is the, the testimony of the Lord. And Paul tells Timothy not to be ashamed of this good news, this life-altering good news. And Paul also tells Timothy not to be ashamed of Paul's own imprisonment for the sake of the gospel. Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Notice whose, whose prisoner Paul was. Paul was in prison most likely by the emperor Nero. Uh, some historical background sheds a little bit of light on this. Uh, in July of 64 AD, a fire broke out in Rome, and over the next week or so, 10 of the 14 districts within the city of Rome were burnt to the ground and were leveled to the ground. And after the chaos of that, that fire, rumors began to spread that Nero himself had ordered the fire to be set in, in order that he might rebuild Rome to his own liking. And that's really bad for your political image. And so Nero began to look for somebody else to take the blame. And since a couple of the districts that did not burn were, were populated largely by Christians, Nero said that Christians began the fire. Roman historian Tacitus put it this way. He said, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Accordingly, an arrest was made first of all who pled guilty of being Christians. And then, upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much for the crime of firing the city, but of hatred against mankind. And Derek Jeter, uh, the author and commentator, not the former Yankee shortstop, uh, Derek Jeter noted that the accusation that Roman Christians hated humanity likely took root in their refusal to participate in Rome's social and civic life, which was intertwined with pagan worship. And so Christians all over Rome were rounded up and were imprisoned, including Paul. And now Paul is languishing in a Roman prison, a prison that would have made the Chateau d'Ifa of the Count of Monte Cristo fame or uh, the Bain de Toulon where Jean Valjean was held in Les Miserables uh, look like a, a weekend holiday. 
Church history tells us that Paul, as the ringleader of the Christians, was kept in the darkest, deepest dungeons of the Mamertine prison. And Roman historian Sallust said that his dungeon was renowned for its neglect, its darkness, and its stench, which gave it a hideous and terrifying appearance. This dungeon was reserved for the greatest revolutionaries, the largest traitors, the biggest critics of the Roman Empire. And now Paul, and in all likelihood as Peter as well, were prisoners there. However, despite being in the deepest, darkest, smelliest prison in Rome with, with impending death hours or days or weeks or months away, Paul says that he is not a prisoner of the emperor Nero. No, Paul acknowledged the, the reality that he was a prisoner of the Lord and a prisoner for the Lord. Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. Paul knew that his life was not his own. He knew that his days were in the hands of the Lord. In spite of Paul being imprisoned, the Lord was still in control. And you know, it would have been really easy to be ashamed, to be fearful of being a Christian or being associated with Paul in those days. Threats of arrest or being cut off from family and friends that you love would have made even the most stout-hearted among us fear. You know, for centuries in, in the West, here in the United States, we Christians have been blessed not to have to fear persecution for the sake of Christ. We have not known what it is like to be persecuted. And that's why we continue to pray for the persecuted church each week who do not have those freedoms. And each week here at Maranatha, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ who, who live in a nation where they face persecution for a daily basis. And we do this not only because Scripture calls us to, the author of Hebrews tells us to remember those who are in prison for the gospel as if we were in prison with them, but we also pray for the persecuted church to remind ourselves, frankly, of what is normal. What is normal? Jesus said, if the world hates you, Know that it has hated me before it hated you. If they persecute me, they will also persecute you. The persecution of Christians has been the norm since the time of Christ. And yes, there have been reprieves where a majority of the population in an area is Christian where persecution has lessened. But overall, persecution for the sake of the gospel is the norm. And today, as culture, as society drifts further and further away from the gospel, and as our society becomes more and more post-Christian, holding, holding, I think, believe, holding to a biblical worldview, a Christian worldview, will become harder and harder for us. And uh, as it does, remember that you are a Christian, not just on a moral or ethical basis, the sanctity of human life or the biblical definition of gender and marriage, as important as those things are, they are not what Christianity is all about. Christianity is the testimony of the Lord, the gospel, the good news of our sins being forgiven in Jesus Christ. Never forget that. 
And it's this reality, uh, that reality kept Paul going in times of trouble. And it's also what, what, what fueled, uh, if you will, this, this Holy Spirit-inspired rabbit trail that he goes on in verses 9 through 12. This section, by the way, verses 8 through 12, is all one long run-on sentence in the Greek language. He starts off by telling Timothy not to be ashamed of the gospel or himself, but then he goes on this uh, beautiful digression of sorts uh, that focuses on many gospel truths. Uh, we read it again, but it's been a while, and because this, this is such a beautiful passage, I want to read it again. Uh, pick it up in the middle of verse 8. Paul says there, he says, Share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Pardon me, and we'll stop there. The first of those truths is that God has saved us. This is the message of the gospel that we talked about earlier. God saved us by sending his own son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. God saved us by allowing Jesus to be the substitute for our sins, dying in our place and on our behalf. His death brought us salvation. God has also called us. This means that God has in his mercy and grace and in his steadfast love and faithfulness called us to salvation through the gospel. And he has done this as he calls sinners to himself. As the word of God is read, the Holy Spirit works on our hearts, softening them, drawing us, drawing people to himself. And again, it's not by things that we have done. Uh, Martin Luther explains in the third article of the Apostles' Creed that deals with the Holy Spirit and sanctification, uh, Luther, Luther hits this truth of God calling us to salvation. And uh, see if you remember these words from your confirmation days. I believe that I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to him, but that he, that he has called me through the gospel, enlightened me with his gifts, sanctified and preserved me in the one true faith. Those words sound familiar, I hope, right? And there's a lot of truth in them. God's salvation and his calling of us are, are not due, Paul says, to, because of our works, due to our works. The good things that we do do not qualify us for salvation. We cannot earn or merit God's goodness, God's grace, God's mercy. We cannot do enough to outweigh the sin that we've committed. We can never atone or cover our debt of sin. There is nothing we can do to earn our salvation. God has saved us and called us, Paul says, by his own purpose and grace. And this purpose and grace was given to us in Christ Jesus, Paul says, before the ages began. Before the beginning began, before the universe existed, before his creation strayed, the triune God knew that redemption would be needed and purposed before the ages began to redeem us by grace. And this plan of redemption has now become known, Paul says, and he says it this way in verse 10, which has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus. This, this plan of redemption veiled back in the day in the Old Testament has now been fully made known. The mystery is uncovered. That which is hidden has been revealed. It came through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ. 
This is the message of Christmas, right? A baby who was born as Emmanuel, God with us. This is the message of Easter and Good Friday when Emmanuel gave up his life and became sin for us, but then was resurrected, raised from the dead, never to die again. Through his death, through his resurrection, Jesus has, Paul says, abolished death and brought to life, and brought life and immortality to light. Jesus' death and his resurrection are a foreshadowing of our own eventual death and resurrection. One day, we will die, right? It could be today, it could be 50 years from now. However, we know that death is not the end. One day, we will be raised to new life, given perfect bodies, free from sin, free from its consequences, and we will never die. In eternity, we will be immortal. In eternity, we will live forever. Amen. And Paul wasn't ashamed of this glorious gospel message. It was a truth. It was the truth that he was willing to stake his life on, that he was willing to die for. He was convinced, fully convinced, that his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, would continue to be with him, even in the darkest, deepest, stinkiest Roman dungeon as he awaited execution. Paul was unashamed. There's another command that Paul gives Timothy. Look at verses 13 and 14. There, Paul tells Timothy to follow the pattern of sound words which he has laid down for him. Follow the pattern of sound words. Listen to these verses here, verses 13 and 14. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Follow the pattern. The, the, word, the Greek word for pattern means an outline or a sketch. It's a blueprint for a project or a standard that everything else is measured to. Follow the blueprints of what I laid down for you, Timothy. You know, when I have time and when it's not 20 below zero outside, I, I enjoy woodworking. <laughs> There's just something really satisfying about taking this, this pile of lumber and turning it into something usable. Over, over the years, I've had the opportunity to make bookshelves, bedside tables, bunk beds, kitchen tables, tour organizers for our kids, among other things. Uh, but with all of these projects, I have followed a pattern. I'm not creative. I can't come up with these things in my brain, so I follow the pattern, the blueprint, the outline, the sketches of others. Now, that doesn't mean that there's right no freedom or flexibility to modify a design slightly or to make something to my own specifications, but I don't want, I don't want to stray too far from what they've designed. For Timothy, the pattern, the blueprint, the standard that was laid down for him was the sound words that he had heard from Paul. The sound words were the, were the message of the gospel. Again, the good news of the forgiveness of sins found in Jesus Christ. These words were to guide and direct Timothy as he went through life and as he went through ministry. And you know, these, these, this pattern of sound words written down again thousands of years ago are still applicable to us today. Nothing has changed within the human condition to warrant an, an upgrade or a modification to Scripture. We don't need to modernize or to contextualize the gospel. It is still relevant today. And in addition to following the pattern of sound words, Timothy was charged by Paul in verse 14. This, he said, By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. 
guard the good deposit. <laughs> Whether it's uh, the infamous real-life duel of, of Bonnie and Clyde or, or, or suave con men portrayed on screen like uh, Danny Oceans and Oceans films, remember those, right? Oceans 11, some of those things, right? Robberies and thefts often capture the headlines in news or the plot lines in movies. Uh, according to the FBI's statistics, there are roughly 1,500 to 2,500 bank robberies that occur each year in the United States. And of those, only a small percentage of thieves actually escape with any sum of money and, and without being apprehended. Uh, most bank robbers actually do not make it out of the front door, and, and if they do, they're caught within days of their heist. And again, according to the FBI, the average amount of money a bank robber gets is around $3,500. <laughs> it's not as lucrative as Hollywood portrays. <laughs> but again, since the days of the outlaw Jesse James, banks have right, increased their security systems tremendously. Heavily armed guards, concrete steel reinforcements, uh, timed vaults, exploding die packets, bulletproof glass. Banks know that their customers have entrusted them with their cash and with their valuables, and banks know how to guard that deposit that has been entrusted to them. In the same way, Timothy was to guard that deposit that had been entrusted to him. More than a monetary deposit, however, Timothy has been entrusted with the message of the gospel. And he was to take care of that, making sure he preached it well and taught it well and not diluting it or polluting it. Finally, in, in these verses, verses 15 through 16, Paul gets really personal here as he tells of, of the struggles and trials that he is enduring as a prisoner. The harsh reality was, unfortunately, that as a result of the threat of imprisonment for, for being Christians, there were those who did turn away from the gospel message. They disowned their Lord and they, they, excuse me, they turned away from supporting those in leadership. Verses 15 and 16, Paul mentions these people and acknowledges uh, that trouble often tells you who your friends are. Trouble often tells you who your friends are. Uh, look at these verses. Let's do 15 through 18 here. Paul says, You are aware of all who are in Asia who turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. You well know the ser all the service he rendered me at Ephesus. Trouble often tells you who your friends are. And when Paul was arrested, he was deserted by all who were in Asia. Uh, most likely when, when Paul was arrested, he had sent letters to various churches and their leadership asking them to come to Rome and to testify for him, uh, providing a character witness of sorts. Uh, but those leaders whom Paul called failed to come, to come through. In his darkest hour, Paul was abandoned by those he needed the most. And remember, Timothy was most likely serving congregations in, in Ephesus at this time. And Ephesus was in Asia. And Ephesus was, in fact, the, the capital of the Roman province of Asia, what we now call Turkey. Those, uh, these who deserted Paul were from Timothy's own churches. And they included a couple of guys whom Paul mentioned specifically by name, Phygelus and Hermogenes. There are a couple of reasons that parents aren't naming their children Phygelus and Hermogenes. 
right? They're hard to pronounce, but more than that, the only claim to fame that these two men have was that they abandoned Paul. They disowned the Christian faith. Paul doesn't need to remind Timothy of the circumstances of how or why these men, as well as others, turned their backs on Paul. It probably had hurt Timothy when these men had deserted Paul. It hurt him, uh, both personally and circumstantially. Trouble often tells you who your friends are. But there was one, Paul says, who stood beside him, Onsiphorus. <laughs> Again, another really hard name to pronounce, but uh, completely different actions. When he heard Paul's call for help, he came. He earnestly searched out Paul's location and provided refreshment for Paul's soul and body. And remember, the, the prison that Paul was serving in was no white-collar prison colony with all the amenities and comforts of home. The dungeon was one of the worst in the Roman world, and that's no exaggeration. No blankets were provided for the prisoners, no cots for comfort, no meals for their health and well-being. Anything that a prisoner would need while in prison, including food and clothing, would be needed to be provided from the outside. And Onsiphorus was supplying Paul with those necessities, the, the bare necessities of life. No wonder why Paul twice prays for him and his household in these short verses. Onsiphorus literally saved Paul's life, and Paul was grateful for it. And he stood by when others were ashamed of Paul and of the testimony of our Lord. Do not be ashamed of the gospel. Do not be ashamed of Paul, his prisoner. I'll share this story in closing this morning. Um, in the book, The Insanity of God, I, I hope you have time to read this book. It's called The Insanity of God. It's written by pastor and missionary uh, who goes by the pseudonym Nick Ripkin. And again, if you haven't read it, I'd encourage you to find it and read it. Uh, in it, Nick shares stories of his ministries in some of the most hostile areas for a Christian, places like South Africa, Somalia, the Soviet Union, China, uh, those places had become a home and a mission field for the Ripkins. Uh, in the late 80s and early 90s, he and his wife were missionaries in Somalia. And some of you would remember the violence in the Civil War that wrecked and is still, in fact, continuing to wreck that country and the people who live there. But the early 90s, in the early 90s, the Civil War was at its worst. Uh, during the Battle of Mogadishu in October of 1993, 19 American soldiers were killed and their bodies were drugged through the streets of Mogadishu. Um, the movie Black Hawk Down was made about that time frame as well. But Nick Ripkin was a, was a Christian missionary in Mogadishu during that time. And of course, being a, in a Muslim country that's openly hostile to Christians, he was officially in the country working as a, as a humanitarian relief organization. And he tells of a story and an incident that took place in 1992 that I don't know if I will ever forget. And uh, let me read part of this book here, and then uh, I'll, I'll summarize some of the rest of his story. He said, he said this, uh, 1992, a good friend with another organization invited me to participate in a special service with four Somali believers who worked for various relief organizations. Seven of us, three Westerners and these four local believers, met at a prearranged time in the privacy of an abandoned, shelled-out building in the heart of Mogadishu, each of us coming alone from different directions. 
Once we had gathered and affectionately greeted one another, my friend led in a time of prayer and fellowship. Then, as Jesus' followers have done for almost 2,000 years, we shared the Lord's Supper. As I did, I wondered how many unnamed and unknown Somalia believers had faced persecution, suffering, and death in this, century, in this country for their faith. I felt honored to worship at the Lord's table with these four brothers who were willing to risk their own blood, their own bodies, and their very lives to follow Jesus among an unbelieving people group in this unbelieving country. And Nick goes on to wonder how long it had been since the Lord's Supper was shared in Mogadishu, and afterwards he would wonder if it had been shared since that day. But the story doesn't end there. A couple of weeks later, word reached the relief organization that Nick worked for that all four of those Somali believers whom Nick had communed with that night had been ambushed and killed assassinated in four separate and individual attacks on their ways to work one morning. A radical Muslim group later took credit for the killings, and it was a warning to the Westerners to leave, but it cost those four Somalians their life. Last week, we, we publicly, publicly took the Lord's Supper together, didn't we? And we didn't even think twice about it. We, didn't, we, we knelt down here at the rail like we've done hundreds of times before. We, we closed our eyes without even wondering if somebody would sneak up from behind and kill us. And then we returned to our seats and later to our homes without a, a second thought of harm coming to us. Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 12 that as we partake in the Lord's Supper, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Not only his death, but all that the, the testimony of our Lord includes. His, his substitutionary death in our place and on our behalf. His resurrection and his victory over death. His ascension to the right hand of God the Father where he is ruling and reigning and his eventual return to establish his forever kingdom. Primarily at the Lord's Supper, we receive the grace and forgiveness of God and we should never forget that. But the Lord's Supper is also a place where we publicly declare that we, like those four Somali believers, were unashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, we pray that you would grant us the boldness to be unashamed for you. And we have been so blessed in the United States in the last centuries here that we have forgotten what it's like to face persecution. Lord, and we pray for our brothers and sisters again who are uh, dealing in chains and under the threat of, of death. Lord, and you would comfort them and strengthen them. Pray that you would also help us to be mindful of, of what we have and to not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord nor of uh, those who are going through hard times. But Lord, may we be bold and may we proclaim what you have done for us. And may we tell others of the glorious gospel message, uh, the true story, the true narrative of what you have done for us. And may that be our guiding thought and our motivation throughout all of our lives. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.